You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. A legend is sung of when England was young And knights were brave and bold The good king had died and no one could decide Who was rightful heir to the throne It seemed that the land would be torn by war or saved by a miracle alone and that miracle appeared in London town the sword in the soul Welcome to Before They Were Live, an ongoing and monthly conversation about the Disney animated canon in chronological order, where we do our best to play our part in a healthy ecosystem of art and criticism and fandom, putting things into dialogue with one another and hopefully enriching the experience of these animated films. We're interested in how these movies move us and shape our imaginations. Today, we're discussing the 18th film in the canon, 1963's The Sword in the Stone. Probably one of the uh, legends or tales that the Disney studio takes on where their vision does not become the cultural zeitgeist version of the character, uh, whether that has more to do with the strength of the legend or the weakness of this movie is, I'm sure, something we will touch on. This movie is a bit like its protagonist, Wart. Uh, perhaps there is more than what is seen at first glance, although it may take a miracle to convince my good friend Michael Farmer, who is a soothsayer and prognosticator and an educator. His pupils often tell him that he was really great, but he could have been killed, to which he always replies, it was worth it, lad, if you learned something from it. Michael and I are also excited to welcome half of the City of Man podcast, Coyle Neal. Uh, he's going to be joining us today in the discussion. How are you guys doing? Good. Yeah, good. Coyle, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, the City of Man podcast, what you guys are up to over there? Uh, I, I mean, we're, we're basically what you guys do with Disney, uh, except with politics. So, you know, um, it's, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, we're, we're the, the Christian Humanist Radio Network political arm. Uh, I've, I've, I've never actually been asked to describe what exactly it is we do. So that's, that's actually sort of a difficult question for me. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's much appreciated by me. I find that uh, almost the entirety of my learning has happened after my uh, formal education. So uh, <laughs> sure. shows like yours and also, uh, and also the Christian Humanist podcast, of course, are, have been really invaluable to me in my um, actual education. So, yeah, we re I, I really appreciate what you guys do over there. Thanks. Well, jumping into uh, the movie here, um, I, I know there's some differing opinions on this, so I don't know who wants to throw theirs down first. <laughs> I, I would really like to hear, because Coyle, uh, Coyle picked this movie very early on when we first started the podcast. He, he messaged me and said, I want to be on when you talk about Sword of the Stone. And I thought, well, okay. What made you pick this one, Coyle? What, uh, this, is not, um, hmm, this is not a majority opinion Disney movie, I think. Yeah, and I, I uh, I've already gotten flack before we started recording because I this this is my favorite of the animated Disney movies. Uh, so that's that's basically why I picked it. Uh, it's the one I liked most growing up, and uh, uh, while I have not gone back and you know rewatched all of them sort of the same way you guys are doing, uh, I think it's still the one I like best. Uh, you could maybe talk me into 
the Emperor's New Groove. Uh, but I mean, this I think this is still the the, the top for me. <laughs> Man, um, you have weird tastes. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yes, you do. Yeah. So oh. I, I mean, I'm I am not saying they're like technically the best. I'm just saying they're my favorite. Yeah. Which uh, is fair. Like that's that's really yeah legitimately fair. But I would not have guessed that you were gonna go with uh, the Emperor's New Groove as something we could talk you into. That's that you, was, you know, that was Chicken Little. <laughs> I don't know that I've <laughs> seen it. <laughs> That's not fair. Yeah. Chicken Little's way worse than The Emperor's New Groove. <laughs> way worse than this movie. All right. Well, then, then no, you can't talk me into it. Uh, uh, but yeah, uh, I think I think what it comes down to is when I was growing up, this was this was the Disney movie that didn't have the romantic stuff in it. I think that's that's probably why I liked it, and maybe it's just nostalgia now. Uh, but maybe maybe there's more to it than that, and maybe some of it'll come out as we're as we're talking through the movie. No, I think I, I, that's a that's a good observation, one that I didn't even think about. I mean, the closest you get is the the two lady squirrels being in love with our intrepid heroes, and they're they're both kind of brushed off. Well, the the fat one is. I think you're supposed to feel pretty bad for the squirrel who's in love with Arthur. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, it's also. Like he goes on with life. Yeah, I I, uh, I have read that there is a great deal of fan fiction describing what happens to that squirrel afterwards. Oh, good lord! Of course there is. Wow, I would. <laughs> I'm 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 afraid to find out. <laughs> uh, yeah, I didn't want to read any of it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, yeah. I I'm I have not read it. I'm sure that exists because, of course, it does. That's what people are like. Did you ever think though that maybe uh, Merlin turns that squirrel into Guinevere? And then she cheats on Arthur. I guess they left that part out on purpose. Yeah, I like where you're going with this, Michael. <laughs> well, this is a, a have have either of you guys read the book? No, the it's T. H. White, right? Yeah, well, the Once and Future King. I, ha- I have yeah. not read it. So this this I read uh, it sorry go ahead. years and years ago. No, I was just gonna say I read it so long ago that I I do remember bits of it, but for the most part, um, yeah, you can you can do as much refreshing to my memory as you want because it's been a long time. I mean the the book is fantastic. Uh, it's uh, uh, this this movie is like the first third of of the you know three set of three or or I forget even how many there are maybe there are four of them, uh, and it is by far the most positive. Things just get sort of worse and worse and worse uh, as as with any Arthur story, uh, but I, I think a lot of the uh, a lot of the strength of the movie comes from the fact that it's based on such a fantastic book, uh, and the themes of the book are are similar to the the themes that they keep saying in the movie even if they don't necessarily stick to it you know this this question of how to uh how to establish right over might you know how to put might in service of right uh how you should be deciding things by by thinking and and by reason and not by just bashing each other on the heads with swords you know the stuff that merlin's always going on about uh that really is sort of the the main idea in the book and uh you know spoiler alert for the book it, it it doesn't work out um I don't think it really works out in this movie either, but maybe we can talk about that too. Well, I mean, the movie, it's its its kind of a weird version of the Arthur story because it leaves out all the really famous parts of the Arthur story. You don't even know he's Arthur unless you know until the end of the movie. You know, hes I think he's called Arthur once in the uh, in the entire movie. So right, it's, it's, the very it's kind of strange. In that in that way, if, if what you're expecting is a is a version of the Arthur story, but then again, most of the Arthur story is probably not appropriate for younger audiences. Yeah, I, I can't. I mean, I can think of maybe one 
film version of, of the Arthur story that would be appropriate for children, but even then that's kind of a maybe, other than other than this one. Yeah. Merlin, on the other hand, I feel like is borrowed everywhere. <laughs> right. And for adults. He's almost a Sherlock Holmes uh, level of, like, just he's, you know, there's versions of him and everything. Um, what do you guys think is the, like, is this the best Merlin, <laughs> at least? Oh, do you man. have, do you have uh, other favorites? The best Merlin. I, I, I saw one with Ben Kingsley once that was pretty good, but it wasn't because it was a good movie. It's just he played a good Merlin. I, I've got to say, I have very, very, very little interaction with the Arthur stories. Uh, I, I, I don't watch. The, I, I watched that terrible movie that came out when we were in college. What was it? Uh, King I Arthur. Think it was called Arthur. Yeah. The one that was like a demythologized Arthur. But I haven't seen the Sean Connery one. I haven't. I haven't read the the T. H. White stories. I haven't read Mort Dart. I haven't read. Um, I haven't. I haven't read Idols of the King. I, I mean, I this is this is not a, a a mythos that I have a whole lot of contact with, which may be why you like the movie more than I do, Coyle, because th- this doesn't this doesn't occupy any kind of special place in my heart. Sure. Well, and it, it may be that I I like some of the King Arthur stuff because I liked this movie when I was growing up. That's that's entirely possible to you. Yeah, that yeah, I've probably got it the wrong direction. And and I will say, I never, I must have watched this when I was younger because I remember the fish part, or maybe that was that was just in one of those package, endlessly repackaged uh, VHSs they put out in the in the eighties. But uh, so I, but this was not one of my favorite movies uh, as a kid. So I don't I don't have any kind of warm memories of it that that kind of brought me through some of the other movies that I don't think are the best. If that makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I personally, I, I think Merlin really makes this movie. I really like him. I, I That's just his movie enjoy it. for sure. Yeah, and uh, he's, he's funny and, and kind of kooky, but not. I mean, there, there's a seriousness to him as well. I, and uh, yeah, my, my kids Excellent. like this movie because of Merlin. Like they, like they were interested in the movie because of Merlin. They, they're, um, yeah. I think I've mentioned on the show before. Like they really love the. The Magic Treehouse books and the Magic Treehouse books, of course, feature uh, Camelot and Merlin's a major role in there. So that was the way I was able to convince them to watch this movie was because Merlin is in it. But then they really enjoy this this version of Merlin. The best thing about this this Merlin is anytime he gets his feathers ruffled, he yells "Madam," uh, which is really funny <laughs> to me. Yeah, particularly in the squirrel scene, right? Yeah, yeah, he's great. I think it's pretty great that Sir Ector can never remember his name and perpetually refers to him as Marvin throughout the entire the entire movie. Yeah, actually, that, that's a that's a nice segue into the other thing I wanted to talk about regarding Merlin was was other people's reactions to him and kind of because um, he is this this sort of man out of time uh, and in most of the Arthur stories, I think, but um particularly in this one, he's you know he's seen into the future. He says he's been to the future at one point. He does go to the future, um, so yeah. I don't know if, if there's any interesting conversation to be had around uh, the way that people uh, are are reacting to Merlin in this movie. Well, I mean, Sir Sir Ector is so concerned that he's doing what he calls black magic, although he he doesn't really do a very good job of, of explaining what black magic is. And the only time we see him do anything that could be considered it is when he 
he does the Fantasia move and has the has the kitchen clean itself. And, and I mean, he he himself points out, uh, you're, you're calling that black magic. Yeah, so, well, so it's, it's black magic of the worst kind. Is of what the worst he says kind. When he runs when Edwin and Sir runs in. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, no, this is actually I, I this is the magic that I dream of. It's this probably one black the, magic of the best kind if you think about yeah. it. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. This uh, snapping your fingers and Mary Poppins. Those are like those are the types of magic that I most want. <clears throat> but, but I mean, he's the main one we see interact with with Merlin as a wizard, right? He's the, he's the the main person we see who is uh, disconcerted by him. I mean, Wart Wart thinks he's amazing immediately. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, and I think what you've got going on there is that Hector and Merlin represent two different sorts of power. This is a movie very much about power struggles, and uh, and so of course Hector, who who is the the king of this decaying castle, uh, he 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 thinks of himself as being all powerful, and then he meets this person who is not subject to his power at all, and so of course he's disconcerted by him. But he can't really do anything because he also recognizes that Merlin has powers he doesn't have. Right, and they're they're both uh, both are responsible for for using their their power to raise Wart. Right, they're 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 both uh, they're both trying to kind of bring up the next generation, uh, and I, I mean it, you know it's it's a children's movie, so obviously they, they don't work this out too much. But you can you can sort of see the di- different directions that it's that it's going to go if uh, you know depending on who who sort of wins in the end, right? If if uh, Ector, who who is not a bad person, right? He's 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 not a bad person, but he's he is also obviously a terrible father. You know, if if he gets his way, uh, and he has sort of chief influence over Wart, uh, the end result, uh, I think the end result's pretty obviously going to be K, like just another K. Uh, whereas if if Merlin gets gets his way, I, I, we don't have exactly the same point of comparison but I, I think uh, uh, you know maybe Archimedes is, is, is the direction that Arthur is going to go if if, uh, if he's more influenced by Merlin Wait, are we, are we suggesting that Archimedes is a good outcome? Well, uh, not I mean he's not K Everything just clicked for me with you in this movie Coyle, <laughs> you're, you, Archimedes is your hero Archimedes is pretty awesome It all makes sense to me now uh, you grew I, up wanting to be Archimedes, and thus the person who stands before us today. I, I took one of those uh, "Who's your Disney sidekick or animal" quizzes, and I definitely got Archimedes. Does that make okay. Ed Song Merlin? Um, maybe. Or maybe it makes it makes Ed Song K if if they're the counterpoints in the movie. Ouch! <laughs> oh, oh man, <laughs> that's pretty bad. Archimedes, though, is the other one. Uh, his reactions to Merlin are 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 pretty funny. Um, he doesn't seem to to quite uh, take Merlin as seriously as Merlin takes himself. <laughs> Archimedes, the educated owl. Highly educated. Highly, highly educated owl. <laughs> and it's it's never explained how he speaks because uh, I, I believe Merlin rejects the notion that he has put a spell on him. But I, I think it's supposed to be. Evidence of Merlin's prowess as an educator, because that's that's really how Merlin is set up in this movie. Is he's this this uh, advocate of a of a particular form of education, one that does not involve learning how to joust. And Cole, you say all of that is straight out of the white. 
Uh, a lot of it certainly is, yeah. Uh, even... I, I, I wondered about that, because I, I thought the, the, the movie had a lot of interesting directions it almost went in and then didn't go in them, so I wondered if, if that was just the kind of remnants of the, of the source material. Right. Uh, it even did have Archimedes, although, uh, if, if I remember right, he is educated in that he can speak, but he's not educated in any other way. So uh, Merlin spends most of his time kind of perpetually covered in owl droppings. Which is what would actually happen, I think. Right. Owls don't make good pets. Yeah. I, I did want to follow up on that and talk a little bit about uh, Merlin's pedagogy, <laughs> being that we're all educators. Um, he seems to really have... Like, none of his lessons seem to end where he begins them. I don't know if that's an intentional, um, if that's intentional on his part, or he's just really good at going with the flow of where, where the student's going, or, uh, yeah, what, <laughs> if it's just overthinking it on my part. Well, I mean, he's, he's set up as this archetype of the absent minded professor, right? One of the first things we see him do is spill tea on himself while he's trying to talk. So I, I think, I think part of it is he, he ends up, giving warts a good education maybe kind of despite himself he has these object lessons that are supposedly about science right so he turns them into a fish in order to teach him how um how physics works uh and what he ends up teaching him is that the survival of the fittest includes the intellect so he has these these weird lessons as you say that don't quite end up where they started but nevertheless seem to be something he believes anyway well except in i mean in in many of the cases, it doesn't actually teach that. I mean, Wart comes away saying he learned that, but kind of the practical result is the opposite. So you know, in in the in the fish example, Wart's actually saved by magic, right? And and oh, that's uh, true. After uh, the same, first time, he saves himself. He, like he uses his brain to get the the pike caught in the chain. Right. He he prolongs his life briefly, but then Merlin saves him with magic. And uh, same thing with Madame Mem, right? When he's a bird, it's Merlin shows up and does the wizard's duel. Uh, and and even, I mean, even at the very end, you know, we get this this whole movie full of lessons about, you know, intellect and, and uh, thinking things through and reason instead of just bashing each other on the head. And at the end of the day, uh, it's still, you know, he, he doesn't pull the sword out of the stone uh, because he's stronger than anyone else, but he also doesn't do it because he's smarter than anyone else. Uh, it's a miracle, right? It, it, it's uh, it's divine intervention. Well, he 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 did does it because he was born to do it, right? And I mean that's that's what the first part of this movie is all about. Merlin knows that he's going to train somebody to do something great, but he doesn't really know the details of it. So his job is less to make war worthy of pulling the sword from the stone. His job is to prepare the future king of england to be the future king of england and and the weird thing is because the movie cuts off before we actually see him doing any kinging uh we don't know we don't know how merlin's lessons prepare him for that if indeed they do at all <laughs> right yeah i want to come back to the lessons but before we do i i, I do want to touch on this sort of uh what you kind of hit on there coil of the the kind of divine intervention um, aspect. If we view the magic almost as, as as a piece of that, like a divine piece of grace that comes in uh, to save Wart out of each of these situations, um, because it's very clearly divine. In the uh, you know he's in the churchyard um, pulling the sword out of the stone. The, there's the angelic voices and all that sort of stuff. And I mean it's it's stated as a miracle. Um, that's even more clear in the source material that this is very like. Uh, divinely influenced. I don't mean just in the Once and Future King, but in um, like the Arthurian legends and stuff. So, right. 
Um, I wonder if there is something uh, here as far as you know, bigger picture, shaping our imaginations type stuff, where where war is learning something of, you know, all of our needs for, um, for grace and for divine intervention in our lives. I do think there's a definite um, kind of Christian subtext in that uh, Wart seems to be chosen because he's weak. So, I mean, that's a that's a theme throughout the Hebrew and Christian Bibles. This this notion that the the race is not to the swift or the fight to the strong. Uh, God in the in the Old Testament is always choosing the the kind of loser second son over the the one who quote unquote should be getting it the powerful one the the firstborn so I, I do I do think you have the kind of remnants of that Christian mythos in this movie I don't think I, I mean obviously Disney didn't invent that in the the Arthur stories much less uh, the the biblical resonances I think I think that's probably just left over from the source material but I I think you've definitely got that but then the movie kind of confuses it with this magic thing because because uh, as Quell points out it's pretty ambivalent about magic uh, the, one of the first things merlin tells wart is uh, magic won't solve all your problems and yet magic kind of solves all his problems so i don't know but it's kind of magic paired with uh relationship right like so it's not only um merlin's magic that saves wart out from the um whatever the big fish is a barracuda <laughs> is that what it is it's um, like Oh, Pike. Okay, from the Pike. Um, you know, it's also Archimedes, right? And it's not only uh, Merlin's magic that sh- that saves him from the wolf when he's a squirrel. It's actually the 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 female squirrel who's in love with him. And it's not only um, well, Merlin is the one who saves him, obviously, from from Madame Mim. But by that point, um, you know, Merlin's really the the strong relationship piece there, right? Like it's the the uh, mentor coming in to save his his pupil, for whatever that's worth. <laughs> yeah. So w- from what I remember, Coyle from the from the Once in the Future King uh, book, it seems like the lessons were more specifically designed uh, to teach Arthur leadership and the things he was going to need to be a king. Whereas, as Michael pointed out earlier, the lessons here seem to be they seem to at least start with more general things like I'm going to teach you about physics or I'm going to teach you about gravity and then they kind of morph. Is that is there is there only a holdover here or is there something something more that we should be seeing about um, Arthur's potential future leadership in these lessons? Yeah, I mean it's 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 been a while since I've read the book uh, and and they I do remember they leave uh, a number of animal adventures out. So he's an ant at some point uh, in in the book. The ants are this fascist society that's just crushed all individuality and and uh, uh, everything's about the collective. And then he's a uh, I forget if it's like a hawk uh, or an eagle, uh, you know, some some kind of hunting bird. Uh, and and again, it's it's uh, courage and and uh, military prowess and and all of that. Uh, but in in the movie uh, again, I think the at least Merlin's repeated statement is, you know, I'm I'm trying to teach you to use your head instead of just relying on uh, physical prowess, right? That's that's sort of the big overall picture is is I'm I'm teaching you uh, that that life is more than just uh, uh, beating on some other guy with a sword, uh, which is what we see Kay doing, right? Uh, uh, Kay is. Uh, 
uh, K is, is, is again, the counterpoint, at least to, to Ward in this case. Uh, and all of his training, at least all the training that we see, is, you know, him him learning how to joust uh, and him getting ready to sword fight and him uh, uh, needing Wart to, to help him with that. Uh, so the, the, the counterpoint is, is going to be this brawn. Does that, does that answer your question? Yes. Yeah, it does. Um, Michael, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Yeah, I mean, and what, what you end up with, if, if you transplant it to the modern age, is that Merlin is this liberal arts guy who's very against sports. <laughs> I think that's the, <laughs> that's the kind of modern residence to it. He hates this jousting. And when he when he finds out that uh, Arthur is going to be uh, is, is going to be Kay's squire. He, he gets so he gets so angry with his uh, protege that he disappears and goes to 20th century Bermuda for the rest of the movie. Right. It's like finding out your star student has you know gone out for the football team and become the not the quarterback I guess but like the like the I don't know the the backup wide receiver or something and then just losing your cool. Well, it makes it worse, right? Because if he were the quarterback, you could at least say he's excelling. But I think what I think what bothers him is that Arthur has he's gone to do this thing that he's not even going to be good at, uh, and he's turning his back on the things that Merlin thinks are important for him. Which it, it doesn't make Merlin look great, I have to say. It makes him look pretty petty. But we've all been there. Sure. Well, and and do we really uh, do we ever have any sense that Arthur is actually good at the stuff that Merlin's wanting him to be good at. I mean, he's he, he certainly shows a number of virtues. He's obviously very brave, and he's obviously very loyal, uh, and he is... It's hardworking. Merlin hard, says they right. just need to figure out how to direct it in the proper way. Right. Um, I don't know that at any point he shows any special intelligence uh, or uh, uh, anything that Merlin's trying to elicit from him, um, but I don't know. It's it's I, I, I'd have to think a little more about that. Arthur is certainly not uh, a student everybody would rush to get to major in their field. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> right. There is a scene uh, where Wart has been... It's after um, the the dishwashing scene where um, Sir Ector comes in, he's trying to bust up all the dishes, and um, then he tells Wart that he's not going to be the squire. And at that point... Um, Merlin comes and have, has a chat with him, and in this uh, scene, Merlin shows a little more compassion towards towards where he is, you know. And he says, um, "I know this meant a great deal to you, and I'm sorry you're not going to be able to do it," uh, which is quite a different reaction from <laughs> later when when Arthur does get to do it. Uh, but he says, "Are you willing to keep doing this? Are you willing to, to continue your education?" And um, you know, there, there's where you see Arthur's perseverance and, and his heart. And he says, yeah, you know, I, I mean, he is, he says, I, what do I have to lose? Which, you know, but I think you also see like, but he doesn't give up, you know, like he's not a, he's not a quitter. And I mean, maybe, maybe that's what you need in a movie for, for kids. Cause I don't know. I mean, if you, if you have this kind of whiz kid, I imagine he's going to be harder for, the, the bulk of your audience to identify with, but the fact that there's really nothing special about Wart himself, I think that um, that that could make him more universalizable. I'm I'm trying not to draw the parallel with uh with Twilight, uh, where the the main character is just this this nothing that anyone can plug themselves into. Well, I think that's quite accurate, and I I think um 
I, I think that's why this is Merlin's movie. I don't know about you guys. I really find the voice acting for Arthur annoying. And it's three different people. Yeah, three, three people. Because the Ricky Sorensen, who who plays him for the most part, goes through puberty halfway through the movie. So they, Wolfgang Reitherman has to bring in two of his sons to play, to play Arthur. Um, but man, I hated the voice acting. Uh, all three of them, just just incredibly annoying, uh, throughout the movie. And probably Sorensen was the worst. When it didn't sound like Mowgli, that's how you know it's Sorensen, because uh, Reitherman's son other son bruce reiterman does uh does mowgli in the jungle book so the other two kind of sound like mowgli the but the 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 older sounding one who does uh arthur i just found him incredibly annoying i wish they would have recut the movie see i didn't pick up on that at all i actually <laughs> yeah man, it's funny like the things that i notice and the things i don't notice in these movies i i didn't even realize it was three different people until i was doing the research this month on it um so yeah that just shows what i know I don't know that I would have noticed it if I hadn't saw that. To be fair, yeah. Once once you've been told, though, it's pretty noticeable. Like if if you go back and and rewatch it after reading that, it, it's it's pretty clear that there's there's at least two different people. Uh, I, I don't know if you'd be able to tell all three all the time, but uh, the, there are some definite differences of intonation and and pitch and all of that. Yeah, the thing I was reading said that you you sometimes get all three in the same scene, which is is crazy to me. I don't understand how, how that would be. How did they even record happen. the dialogue? <laughs> yeah, That's exactly. What I don't understand. I, I, yeah, I don't I don't understand it either. Because um, I really feel like you could probably record uh, Arthur's dialogue in this movie in an afternoon. Like, I, why would it take so long that Ricky Sorensen would go through puberty? Maybe they yeah. wrote the movie as they were recording it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing I read was that. Um, so Bill Pete is is credited with the story on this, and and this is his last movie with Disney. He does a little bit on uh, Jungle Book, and then then he leaves. But um, uh, he's he's got a really interesting um, career post Disney, where he does a lot of um, illustration and and stories. So he's definitely a story guy. Um, his autobiography is is really fascinating and fun to read because it's it's uh, it's illustrated and and written, um, and he kind of goes through his years at Disney. But anyway, uh, Bill Pete is really he's an interesting guy. Um, but the the one book I was reading said compared with Bill Pete's 51 page treatment for Sword uh, from the, uh, 1961, Reitherman's film is broad and careless. <laughs> so um, broad and careless sounds right to me. I think, <laughs> I think that's a really good description. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that, yeah, that comes out of the the golden age of animation, um, is is where that quote comes from. So I I don't know if they were writing it as they went or or just adding adding things to to Bill Pete's story. It's it's a it's a really shaggy movie. The the the, it, the the centerpiece are these three animal scenes, and all of them go on I think about five minutes too long. Um, especially the, uh, the squirrel one, uh, the, the squirrel one hits the same beats over and over and over again. Uh, and, and it's, it's funny and cute at first, but it just keeps going. It's like they didn't want the movie to be an hour and 10 minutes. So they had to extend this scene. Uh, and I, I was, I was ready for it to be over by the time it was over. Yeah, I agree. The, the squirrel 
the squirrel uh, bit is, I think, the the worst part of the movie. But again, if if I like the movie because there's no princess, of course, I, I wouldn't like that part either. Well, and it, it's funny because I found that very charming at first. I thought it was I, I thought it was really funny that the the female squirrel kept grabbing his hands and putting them on her nose, like it was it was in reference to some sort of cartoon universe squirrel mating ritual that was never explained to us. So I, I really liked that, but it just kept going. Uh, and then it the the movie seemed confused about how we were supposed to feel about that. Which might be appropriate if you're talking about love, right? Yeah, that's if true. That's, if that's the big point, yeah, this is confusing and no one really understands it, and it can feel like it goes on forever. Yeah, that's, I guess it's a more powerful force than gravity in some ways. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna be the counter on this one because I I actually um, for well, first of all, my kids just laughed uproariously through this whole scene. Like I think oh, I was physical... gonna ask if your kids liked it. Yeah, I think the physical humor really like plays well with them, and I think it's interesting the um, the you know the girl squirrels with the thing on the nose, but also like it's like anything that Arthur does, she interprets as some sort of affection or love, and so then she does it back to him, you know. Um, and then the I think the girl squirrel with Merlin does the same thing, so I, I found that kind of interesting um, and funny. I, I mean, I think that's a good good uh, humor device. Um, but friend of the show, um, Jason, who who often writes me about these movies before we record, he also he agrees with both of you guys. He said I don't even see the point of why this scene is in the movie. And and uh, Coyle, he was definitely in agreement with you of of this is more of the boy you know the boy movie um, than some of the princess ones we've watched. So um, yeah, he's in agreement with you that we don't yeah. Right, or than the ones we grew up with. Right, I mean, uh, certainly more than Little Mermaid or Beauty and the Beast or Aladdin or or even The Lion King. I don't know, Aladdin's a pretty boy movie, I gotta say. Aladdin, I mean, we'll get there in twelve years or whatever, but Aladdin, um, <laughs> Aladdin seems to me to be a, a reaction to the fact that the last couple were princess movies. I mean, I know there's a princess in Aladdin, but most of the emotional weight of that movie is on the boy. I I, I think that must have been focus grouped. Oh, it's time to it's time to have a movie for little boys so we can sell merchandise to them. <laughs> sure. Job well done. But yeah, I mean, maybe that's why this one gets so little love, other than the fact that it's not a very good movie. Uh, is that it, <laughs> there there just aren't a lot of girl stuff in this in this movie. I mean, there how many female characters are there? There's the there's the two lady squirrels, and there's the Madam uh, Mim. Madam Mim, uh, who ends up being in the Scrooge McDuck comic books I read uh, <laughs> without explanation, and then uh, then the 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 cha- chambermaid and uh, and Ector's castle who has my favorite line of the movie uh, Heaven preserve us <laughs> when when the uh, when the Fantasia cleaning team goes wrong and embarrasses Hector she yells Heaven preserve us and it made me laugh out loud I can't do her voice but you saw the movie you remember. It's interesting how they work the profanity in this movie. Yeah, uh, I, they, I must have missed the F word. Was it in there? <laughs> no, uh, but uh, uh, so they, they take uh, what I assume is supposed to be by God uh, and put in by Jove. And it's it's everywhere once you notice it, especially from Surrector. I did not notice it. I'll have to go back and... Well, I'm not going to go back because I don't want to watch this movie again. <laughs> So 
Yeah, Michael, talk, talk a little bit more about what you didn't like about this movie. Um, well, it's weirdly of... paced, so so I, I think I think that's a big part of it. Is it's not it's not well put together as a movie. That that like that the quote you had about Reiterman, I, I thought was was pretty dead on. And I don't mean to badmouth Reiterman because he did the Jungle Book, which I think is a great movie. Um, but the other thing is that the art is so ugly. We we talked last week about or last month about uh, the the Xerox effect that they're using, and I think it's much more evident here because it matches the it matches the backgrounds much worse than it does in 101 Dalmatians. So you have these really thick outlines around all the characters in a way I found distracting. I thought all the human characters, especially Sir Kay, were animated really, really um, poorly, I guess is, is the, is the word I'm looking for. They don't, they don't move the way people move. And, and Kay's mouth in particular, I thought was really terribly animated. Uh, I, I just, um, I, this is a weak movie to me. I, 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 it doesn't have a whole lot to recommend it uh, to to me. I, there were a few things I liked. Um, there was a there was the scene where they're walking by the moat right before the fish scene. Um, it has it has their reflection in the water, and I thought that was actually a really lovely animation. Um, but for the most part, uh, I thought this movie was ugly, just visually speaking. Like like the Dark Ages was ugly. Uh, yeah, well, and I didn't love the anti-medieval attitude of the movie either. <laughs> the Dark Ages. One big medieval mess. But then he goes to the modern age and doesn't like that either, so that was gratifying. This movie promotes the tired old myth that medieval people thought the world was flat. As I always tell people, uh, there are probably more people today who think the world was flat than in the Middle Ages. Most people probably just wouldn't have had an opinion, but right. people knew the world was round since Aristotle. Annoying. <laughs> are you, will either of you defend the, the look of this movie? <laughs> I'm not going to defend it. I, I will say I agree with you that that moat scene is really lovely. Um, uh Walter Walt Paragoy did the colors and stuff on this again, and he's the same one we talked about a little bit with 101 Dalmatians. Um, and you know the the problem was that Disney really didn't like the the background look of 101 Dalmatians. That's why they went away from it in this one. And so I think the the scenes that are the worst are actually the ones where they go back to kind of that soft. Um, like soft colors, kind of watercolory. Um, it just looks very bland. Um, With but the there's Xerox a few, effect, it just doesn't work at all. Yeah, yeah, it just doesn't work. Um, there's a few places where um, where Walter Paraguay's colors really. Um, like he's just so wild with his colors that I feel like um, those those scenes come back out. Like particularly in the water, I feel like the water looks great. Um, they swim through the the tickly um, reeds or whatever at one point, and I I just think that that's really beautiful. Um, the the opening um, when uh, Wart first goes into the woods, and we kind of. Or, or maybe it's before Wart. I, now I'm getting confused in my head if it's when Wart enters the woods or if it's when we just first are following the hawk through the woods. But um, one of those scenes I thought was really nice. It was um, like they used some of the depth of field stuff again. And and um, I'm always interested in how they do 
the woods ever since we saw Bambi and, and, and they were having trouble with it. And so they went for that very impressionistic style. So every time there's woods now, I'm kind of looking for like, how do they solve that problem of making it, it feel like a forest without it just being cluttered. And the way they solve the problem in this one is with the colors. It's just, it's, it's just wild colors that you wouldn't actually see in a natural forest. Um, but then it allows to get all the bushes and the, and the trees in there. Um, but they stand out from each other because of the colors. So yeah, there's a, there's a couple moments in here that I feel stand out, but but I agree for the most part. It's it's just not at the level, and and some of that was was budget as well. We are at a, um, I think uh, the quote I read said that that it was a um, they cut the budget from from 101 Dalmatians by 40 percent. Um, oh my goodness! And it, that and, was already a cheap movie. Yeah, that one was already cut drastically from where we were two movies ago with. Um, Sleeping Beauty. So just just think about this. We are four years from Sleeping Beauty. That movie is also set in the Middle Ages. Think about how much uglier this movie is than that movie, and and how quickly um, the artistic standards of the studio declined between fifty nine and sixty three. It's amazing what a uh, a sixty percent drop in your funding will do, huh? <laughs> sure. And of course, I mean, Sleeping Beauty almost bankrupted the studio. I get that. I get that it wasn't a profitable movie, even though it was a hit, because it was so expensive to make, and that's what makes it so beautiful. But, man, uh, moving from that to this is depressing. Yeah, and the other place that you see it is there is a lot of repeat animation in this movie. And I don't mean just stuff that they, they take from other movies or that we're going to see again in future movies, but like within the movie itself, like uh, there's there's a few scenes that, that are clearly exactly the same. Um, like the near the end when Arthur's going off to get the sword and Case chasing him, it's the exact same scene from the beginning when, uh, when Arthur fell on top of Kay and messed up his shot in the... In the um, you know when he he's hunting the deer, it's 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 um, it just, they're just in different clothing. Yeah, and the the other the other thing is is the the vocals get repeated too. Every time every time Warp falls, they use the same sound of him falling. Which how much money could that possibly save? Yeah, I guess I I, I suppose it's got to do with time. You know, like the the less time you have to use to to re-record things or or whatever. Um, yeah, and I think the other place that you see it is just how few characters there are in this movie. Um, you know, I think if if uh, you know, it, it, like comparing it to Sleeping Beauty or Cinderella or whatever, like those castles are packed with people, even if they're not necessarily you know in the you know they're not main characters, but they're they're just they're around you know. Whereas here, we never see anybody except for uh, our main characters and and a you know, a couple side characters. Although that does kind of work with the movie because the, the movie coil made that crack about the middle ages, but the truth is, I mean, we're living almost in a wilderness in the, in this movie. Uh, so it makes sense that the, it's kind of sparsely populated because this is not the, this is not the bustling middle ages of sleeping beauty. This is, I mean, basically society is, has come to an end because there is no King. So I, I don't think they did that on purpose, but I think it kind of worked out nicely for them. Yeah, a very sort of judges feel, huh? Like everybody just does what they please because there is no king, and that well, you, that ends society. Well, yeah, and I, I I thought of Thomas Hobbes. I'm sure you did too, Coyle. 
the the opening narration talks about this is is a war of all against all, where life is na- nasty, poor, brutish, and short, or however Hobbes puts it. It's it's very Thomas Hobbes, and and I thought maybe it wasn't on purpose, and then the uh, the squire who falls ill, so that Wart has to go be the squire. His name is Hobbes, so I I think I think they're playing with that. Whether that's White's uh, White's gag or Disney's, I don't know, but. Definitely, definitely, we're living in a kind of Hobbesian dystopia at the beginning of this movie, right? And I, I think it's it's interesting that you have this uh, this divine intervention at the beginning, right, uh, with the, the the song about the sword and how England is in desperate need of something, and then this this sword shows up. Uh, I think the way the narrator says it is the miracle didn't work, uh, which is uh, not a line you will find anywhere in the Bible, to the best of my memory, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there's 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 some. Uh, uh, I I don't have any big thoughts about that. I just I thought that was kind of interesting that this this miracle was uh, was was sent, and uh, it it takes you know however many years uh, I guess you know ten years before someone comes along who can actually pull the sword. And then and it for that whole, yeah, and and for that whole time there's this uh, uh, state of nature uh, where where the wilderness is growing and people are are killing each other and. Uh, I don't know if uh, if uh, the uh, the castle where where uh, Ector lives is supposed to be sort of a uh, an out of the way refuge, or if ev- you know it's it's just everywhere else is as bad as it is, uh, and it's just not that bad yet because it's only been a few years. Again, I'm I'm not sure exactly what that the point is, and maybe it's you know it's a children's movie, so they're not going to dig too much into it. Did you catch the name of the castle? Uh, Forest uh, Savage, Savage. I don't know how you're supposed to say S A U V A G. They pronounce it Suavage for some reason. <laughs> Suavage. Yeah, but uh, I mean that's that's out of the book too. Yeah, but I, I don't. That know means that means wild forest. Okay. So I mean, when you 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 have this tension in this movie, and this was the part I thought was the most interesting. And I'm, I, I, like I said, I figured this was a remnant from the book because it doesn't sound like something the the movie would focus on, but you have this civilization that is in imminent danger of falling into wilderness, unless you have this Hobbesian mortal God, uh, King who's going to come, um, to come restore order to the kingdom. So I, I actually found that very interesting. Um, I was going to say, I wish they would have focused on it more, but if, that would have been a very strange children's movie. And maybe I should just go read the book. Yeah. The, the book is super depressing. Uh, because of course it's an Arthur story, uh, and it's an Arthur story written in the sixties. No, so, that's, yeah, that, the book's from the forties or the thirties, which doesn't make it less depressing. But that book's from nineteen thirty-eight. Uh, yeah, yeah, sorry. The, uh, the, the there's a it's a series, so uh, the last book I think is published later. Yeah, it was actually so. Um, not to get too far into that but yeah the this part of the book the once and future king part um that this is based on was was written earlier like you said michael but then actually i think when it was um all put into to one larger volume um it's actually revised so it's it's hard to find the actual story that this um was was that this movie was based on i mean i don't know how much the revisions were like it's it's the same story for the most part but there were there were some revisions in the bounded volume so to make it align more with those, with the more, um, like you said, the, it does get very dark <laughs> by the end of, of the, uh, you know, the next couple in the series. 
I, I did not know that. I mean, I knew that there were dark things that happened in the Arthur legend with Guinevere and um, and Lancelot and all that stuff. I did not know that the, those stories were unrelentingly dark as you're presenting them, Quail. Yeah, uh, it it's not not to ruin this movie for everyone, but even even Pelinor has this horrendously tragic ending. Who, who's it's, Pelinor? It's, he's the knight that visits and tells them about the tournament that's going to be coming. Uh, uh, up in London. Oh well, do tell what happens to Pelinor. Uh, I want to say Queen uh, Queen Mab seduces him, uh, and then has a bunch of kids by him, and then uh, he her kids kill him or her nephews kill him. It's been so long since I've read the book; I'm not remembering the exact details. Uh, but it's it's this sort of weird romantic sort of family murder thing. That's interesting. Yeah, I, yeah I, obviously they can't put that in this movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that, I feel like, in the, like, just the, yeah, marrying the wrong person or, you know, how ha- you know having your kids kill you <laughs> or whatever, I feel like, in, in that book, um, from what I remember. And I remember also Michael being really surprised by it because going into it, I had no idea um, that, you know, I thought Arthur... Um, was more of a was more of a happy story, so I was quite surprised. It was more like Robin Hood, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, something like that. So, hey, is it true that Robin Hood is in Sword in the Stone, the the book? Yes. There's a there's a great lost opportunity, huh? <laughs> the crossover. I mean, I'm sure there's fan fiction about that somewhere too. It'd be hard though, since Robin Hood is a fox. Like, uh, he's, not... he's in the kingdom of the animals. That's where the that's where that female squirrel works in, Michael. Part, we found the key to all mythology. Higgitus figgitus ambergazing. I want your attention, everything. We're packing to leave. Come on, let's go. No, no, not you. Books are always first, you know. Hockety buckety wockety whack, abracadabra dabra knack. Shrink in size, very small. We've got to save enough room for all. Figgitus, figgitus, figgitus more. Prestidigitorium. Cicero, you belong in the seas. Alphabetical order, please. Alakafez, Malakazez, Malakazez, Maripides. Diminish, diminish, dictionary. That word's in your vocabulary. Hockety, pockety, wockety, whack. That's the way we've got the pack. Figgitus, 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 bum, higgitus, figgitus, figgitus. Stop, stop, stop! Well, we haven't talked much about uh, Madame Mim. I, I don't know if you guys want to go there or um, if you have an, another direction you wanted to head. I think that's one of the better scenes in the movie, one of the more fun scenes. Their their wizarding duel where they keep turning into animals. Uh, Merlin, kind of an idiot, because he turns into nothing but prey animals. Uh, but, you know, he wins in the end. <laughs> uh, I think maybe my favorite shot in the movie is when he's falling as the walrus, he's going to fall on top of her. Uh, he has this beatific look on his walrus face, and uh, it, it really cracked me up. Yeah, the wizard's duel is great, and I yeah I, I love uh, I love the idea of the wizard's duel. You know, out, like trying to outwit each other, and then um, Merlin can't remember uh, any of his um, you know of his spells, and yeah, it's, it's really 
It, I agree. It's it's one of the one of the highlights of the movie for sure. And she immediately she she sets these rules and then breaks them before the duel even begins. So that's pretty funny. Right, which is uh, you know a, a great parallel with Merlin, who is at least uh, supposed to be honorable and and virtuous and, and all of that. And she is she is a cheater from start to finish. Uh, I mean, does she turn into any animals that aren't? In, you know, inherently vicious and awful. Elephant? Maybe the chicken, I guess. She turns into an elephant. Elephants aren't vicious and awful. Uh, that's fair. It's afraid of the mouse, though. Yeah. <laughs> Which that confused me, because it's stated explicitly earlier that uh, when you turn into an animal, you're not turning into them, right? Because you don't gain their instinct. That's what makes people different. You have to learn how to re- use your reason. It's very Aristotelian. Very medieval. Um, right. But... Uh, so, so you're you're just your yourself shaped like a fish or shaped like a squirrel. So, if she's just herself shaped like an elephant, why would she be so afraid of a mouse? Ah, uh, but what maybe they... she is also afraid of mice. Oh, that could be. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say that Wart does eat the insect, though. So I think it's not like you're right that it's stated that that you don't gain the instincts, but then that's also proven wrong. So. That's true. He eats it and then is horrified at himself. So maybe you gain the instincts the longer you. St- Stay as the animal. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah, there's some sort of blend there. Yeah. What does Bim say when she first hears War? Like he falls down the the chimney, and um, I can't I can't remember the line now, but she's like, I hope somebody's dying or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she uh, she's pretty funny. She's her magic is is purely destructive. She. The, the fact that Merlin sees something good in war means that she has to kill him. We shouldn't say kill him. What, what did she say? Do away with him? End right. him? I think it's destroy. Destroy. <laughs> I think. I, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that she's the... Uh, I think she is obviously the worst person in the movie, right? As close as the movie comes to having an out-and-out villain. And even she's kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she—you you get the sense uh, since she wouldn't be a threat if he hadn't gone to her house. It's not like Maleficent or somebody like that. She mostly right. just well, wants to be left alone, right? And and even at that, she's still an in, engaging and interesting character. She's marvelous. <laughs> right. Right. Again, with games and sport and stuff being being bad though, because I mean that's what she's really interested in, like is is games. Like she's playing cards when, yeah, and then she says, "I do love a game." And so, yeah, I I don't know if I can agree with. I I don't think I can get on board with that in this movie. So I hadn't thought about that. There's like three games in a five minute chunk there, isn't there? Because she's playing cards, and then she uh, she chases Wart around the room as a cat, and then she. Fights with Merlin. Yeah, and then the joust isn't far after that, or the the sword fight. Right. And maybe maybe uh, maybe Disney just really hated you know professional sports. The goofy shorts would would seem to suggest otherwise. Did did, did Walt Disney have anything to do with this movie, Josh? I know this is the last one released while he's alive. Yeah, I think other than disliking it <laughs> a lot, I think a lot of um, Jungle Book is reaction against this movie, from what I understand. Um, he really didn't like this one, and so he he got a little more interested in, in Jungle Book. Um, but yeah, the 
I think the the animators were basically begging him to step in and solve problems when when they were facing them, uh, because because he was he had such little little interest, and yeah, it was basically um, uh, for better or for worse, it was kind of the Reitherman show, and I guess he kind of got the job because um, uh, Ward Kimball says uh, they picked out a guy who wouldn't give them much trouble. <laughs> he was always subservient. To the to the place, meaning to to the studio. So, poor uh, we, Yeah, he, he doesn't come out looking great, and so, um, I mean, not that it's bad to to be loyal. Um, and I mean, clearly that's something that we see in Arthur. So, so we do see that side. But it's weird that this movie kind of reproduces the condition of the studio at the time. You you have you have a, a land without a king. The king is off building model railroads somewhere. And, uh, and and the studio falls into this weird dark ages. That's uh, that's very interesting. Do you think? And and you know what I read is that Merlin is based on Disney himself. Yeah, I think the character design. I don't know how much of the personality, but the uh, anytime um, you see the big nose like that. Yeah, and I think the the eyebrow, maybe some of the eyebrow movements or something, because I think Walt was known for his eyebrows. But it's funny though. I think. Um, the, the kind of cult of Walt Disney, I think a lot of people who don't know better think that Walt was really intimately involved with all these movies and that thus the downturn happens after he dies, after Jungle Book. But, I mean, the story you've been telling us, he essentially hasn't cared about any of these movies since Lady and the Tramp, maybe before that. Yeah, or at least passing interest, right? Like, I, mean, I think every once in a while he, he does feel an affection towards... Um, you know, anim- animation is what what got him started, and what you know was 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 his ability to to become who he is. So I think he he does feel an affection for it, but it, it's just not a driving passion or interest um, the the way some of these other things are. So kind of sad. I mean, I, I I'm the one of, of the three of us who didn't like this movie, so maybe you guys just disagree. Um, but I, I know I, I'll never be able to see this again without without picturing the studio crumbling just the way that uh, Castle of the Forest Sauvage is crumbling. I think it's a really good point. Even even enjoying the movie, I mean, I I, I don't. In, <laughs> there's no doubt in my mind that it could be a much better movie. You know, like it's it's almost a um, yeah. You wish you wish things could have been different and, and that something really great could have come out of this movie. Cause I, th- I think they have the, some of the pieces in place for it to be really great. Um, but it's like you said, like um, there's, there's not really an emotional heart to it. Um, we don't, we don't always know what we're supposed to feel. And um, some of the scenes go on too long. Uh, they don't dig into some of the more, more interesting things that they could do. Parts of it look really bland. Like, yeah, I, I, I enjoy it, and I, I don't know how much of that's nostalgia and how much of it is just seeing the, the, um, uh, you know, the, I don't know, I don't know what you would call that, but the, there's that, those small pieces that could come together to something, to something really great. But it's just not quite there. Well, I, I was just thinking that the, the animation in this movie is not worse than the animation in Robin Hood, but Robin Hood is such a joyful movie, and this is not to me. It it just it just the magic fails to materialize. Ironically, it's the it's maybe it's the lack of the love story. I don't know. <laughs> I know that's yeah, going to be controversial with Coyle. It's the girl stuff. Yeah. Maybe it's the girl stuff you need though. Maybe. 
<clears throat> Actually, but then, Robin... and then again, you know, Jungle Book doesn't have a love story either, and Jungle Book um, also very maybe what we're missing is Phil Harris. Yeah, that that could be true. Yeah, there's a yeah. I, I was being a little facetious with the girl stuff because definitely Rob like so Robin Hood is the one for me where I was like as soon as they hit the that um well we'll talk about it when we get to Robin Hood but as soon as they get to the love stuff that's where I always wanted to fast forward as a kid um not as much in this movie with the squirrel scene I still enjoyed the squirrel scene in this one but. we have to talk about the music which this is the first uh this is the first soundtrack written by the sherman brothers who would do a lot of disney stuff moving forward both uh both in the films and in the parks so well they did this they did mary poppins i believe they did the jungle book uh they did the aristocats um what else did they do it's a small world there's a great big beautiful tomorrow uh from the carousel of progress they did many, many things. Uh, uh, what's the What's the movie with the kid catcher? It's a live action movie. Oh, Chitty uh, Chitty Bang uh, Bang. Chitty Chitty. That's bang, not bang. Disney, but they did that. So I mean, this is this is their first Disney movie, which you know, this is not their best work. I don't know that I have a lot to say about the music. I I I agree that the music isn't isn't great in this and honestly until i went back and rewatched it i had trouble remembering that there was music in the movie uh just because it's so it's it's both unobtrusive and so specific to what they're actually doing at the moment yeah it's like alice in wonderland uh, in that sense isn't it right, i had to remember right, there being uh, so many songs in alice in wonderland because they're such an integral part they don't stop the action to do them right other than that intro song about the sword, I, I, I'd remembered that one. And then, you know, once you once you think about it a little bit, right? right there's the the song about the squirrels, and then the song about the uh, uh, the fish, and I think there's a song with the dishes, right? Uh, and then packing up. So when, once you start to think about it, then like, oh yeah, there is all of that. But it's it's all very muted, uh, right? It, it, it's 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 certainly not large productions. It's one or two people singing in a very small setting, which might be part of what. Part of the reason I, I like the movie it is is that it is a uh, uh, it is much more restrained, uh, despite the big picture setting of this is about the you know the future of England and whether or not the entire place is going to fall into chaos. Uh, the movie is is still just a tiny sliver, right? It's 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 a very zoomed in uh, picture of what one little kid is experiencing, both musically and in terms of the overall story, right? You can imagine the bud like if they had the budget that you know something like the packing up song would be like the equivalent of like be our guest or something right um, right so yeah I think I think the packing up song is is by far my favorite in this movie I really I really enjoy it I like um, I like that, the, that's figurus uh, yeah figurus figurus whatever <laughs> I just I can't sing it because he's got a, a lot of nonsense words with a lot of syllables in them but I I really like that I like the nonsense words with a lot of syllables yeah it's very supercalifragilisticexpialidocious yeah um I, I, the, the thing I'll say about the Sherman brothers and this is not to, this is not to put them down they're obviously some of the greatest cartoon music composers of all time maybe the greatest but um Compared to the music in the last decade or so of, of Disney movies, the decade before 1963, not the decade before 2019, uh, I think they're a little more 
childish the, the, the music is. So if, if you compare the music in this to the music in Lady and the Tramp, for, uh, for example, that, that music feels relatively adult, whereas this feels like music for children. And I, I think you get that again, especially in Mary Poppins, uh, maybe not so much in the jungle book, but I, I think, I think they're pitched a little younger than the, the other composers whom we've been listening to, uh, in these movies. Do you agree? I, I think so. That's a, yeah, that's a really interesting point. I would, I'd have to go back and, and, and think a little more closely about it, but even like a, mom, a moment ago, you compared it to Alice in Wonderland. And I, I remember just loving the music in Alice in Wonderland as, as we listened to it. Like it was just, um, I think, yeah, really, really lovely all the way through, even though I, you know, a lot of those songs don't stick with me um, the way some of the other big numbers do. Um, whereas this movie, I do like the songs, but you're right that they're, they are a little, there's something very different about them. Well, there, there's no equivalent in this movie to In the Golden Afternoon from Alice in Wonderland, which is a song that I think could have been a song written for the radio or um, or to He's a Tramp, but I love him from Lady and the Tramp. Or I mean, Sleeping Beauty is kind of a weird case because the music comes from Tchaikovsky and it's not fair to <laughs> it's not fair to say the Sherman Brothers aren't Tchaikovsky. But I, I, I think this is a different approach to the music than what we've been seeing, even, even than the Cruella de Vil song, which is a, a jazz song that feels very up to date. Right. It's, it's music that is, it's music that is obviously only written for this movie with the understanding that this is a children's movie. It feels a little more Sesame street or something in that way. No, not that you don't have incredibly talented people working on it and, and catchy sorts of things, but, um, yeah, stop and go to and fro. That's what makes the world go round. Just feels a little more, I, I don't know, PBS educational than <laughs> than the other stuff that we've been uh, listening to so far. Though to be fair, in universe, that music is that song is there to educate him. So maybe that's maybe that's as it should be. Right, and excluding the the beginning song about the sword. Left, right, left, and right, my day. That's what makes the world go round. In and out, thin and stout. That's what makes the world go round. For every up, there is a down. For every square, there is a round. Yes. For every high, there is a low. Yeah. And for every two, there is a fro. Fro. Yes, fro. Two. Another thing I really like in this movie is is kind of the use of, of Merlin's magic, and um, it seems like it has to coexist with Arthur's imagination. So if Arthur can imagine it, then then Merlin can do his magic, um, which I, I, I just like that concept. I, I don't know if there's there's a lot to say about it, but it felt very um, Disney. I noticed that too. That the magic is a kind of aid to the imagination rather than something that stands on its own and it's really kind of what i mean going back to you know merlin's uh teaching you know like it's it's what it's what merlin's really pushing him to do right is is to imagine a different sort of reality than the one that he's in um so uh you know not only to imagine himself as a fish or imagine himself as a bird but eventually to imagine himself as as not in this version of the middle ages which you know i know you took offense to, to this version of the middle ages michael but um you know like he he is trying to get him to imagine him, his way out of that 
right? Or, or at least to be able to see things from from the other perspective, right? To to be able to to think like a fish or think like a bird or think like a squirrel. Uh, presumably, the the extension is, you know, when when you are a king, you ought to be able to think like one of your subjects. Right? You you shouldn't all be you shouldn't be entirely focused on yourself, and you shouldn't be entirely focused on. Uh, what you want and the fact that you can get it because you're stronger or you have an army, but you should be thinking about uh, the, the the people that you are supposed to be serving. Is King Arthur known for his empathy? I mean, there's there's so many different versions of King Arthur. I I don't know what King Arthur is known for anymore. Fair enough. Is empathy a a virtue that would be? Um you know, in the in this time period, uh, valued? Ooh, it would be a good question for David Grubbs, wouldn't it? I, I'm thinking about, like, noblesse oblige, so, I mean, it, it certainly would have been seen as a... It certainly would have been seen as an obligation for a king or a lord to take care of the people in his charge, but I, that's not really empathy. That's like, I'm ontologically better than you, and thus I, I need to act in your best interest because of that. But that's not like putting himself in their shoes. I mean, it's it certainly, it would at least be sort of a subcategory of charity, maybe. Yeah. Right. You're 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 supposed to care for others, and part of caring for others is knowing enough about them to know how to care for them. Empathy as a modern virtue is so so built on democracy. I think right. that I'm not I'm not sure that. I'm not sure that they would have recognized it as a virtue in the Middle Ages, but I'm not a scholar of that era. If David Grubbs is listening, maybe he'll write in and tell us and we can put it on the website. I mean, it's it's obviously a virtue in this movie. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, is, isn't that... That's one of the things that uh, that Warp blows up at Ector for, right? Is, is you don't understand and you don't like anything you don't understand. And you should just realize that there are people who want things different than what you want. A very teenage uh, blow-up. Right. And not, I mean, not completely misguided either. Again, I think uh, I think Ector is clearly a good person, but if, if K is the sign of what kind of father he is, uh, I, I don't know that we can say he's a great father figure. Well, I mean, Kay is not a monster. Kay's just an idiot. You know, he's a meathead. Right, right. But he's not the one you want as king either, and I think the yeah. idea is Pelinor. Pelinor makes yeah. a big deal about that. Kay's got yeah, Pelinor. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. simple to think about. But Pelinor is also the one who brings the news that, hey, this is how we're going to decide our next king, and he seems quite excited about it at the time. So, I, and I think the idea that you're supposed to get um, is that it's going to be a bunch of Ks um, bashing each other uh, to decide who the next king is, unless the miracle finally does work and and Arthur is made king instead. Well, and they've all forgotten the miracle, so. I don't. I don't know that that's even on anyone's radar. It's it's going to be a K, some version of K. The battle right, yeah. to go to the strong and a race to the swift. Right. Hey, here's a question, um, and this is again just general Arthur stuff. Is Arthur? He's an orphan in this movie. Is he the the son of Uther Pendragon or whoever the king was before? Yeah, uh, he is in. In the legend, in this, all they tell us is that he is Ector's foster son. Right, right. 
but yeah, in in legend, he is he is the uh, illegitimate son of the king. Another thing they're not going to put in a children's movie, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, it, well, an illegitimate when Uther had Merlin change his appearance to, to look like the husband of the lady that he liked, uh, so that he could seduce her. You know, also not going to make it into a children's movie. <laughs> I think that's right. legally rape. It, right. Well, <laughs> I was just makes Merlin say, a darker character too. Yeah, I was just going to say in Mallory though that they, they go to great lengths to establish that he is actually the legitimate heir because uh, the 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 man that he's impersonating has been dead for at least three hours um, before right. before he's conceived, and so and then um, and then uh, Uther marries her within. Uh, whatever the I forget what the what the time is um, before she she delivers. There's there's a certain amount of time and and he is he's married her before before that and so so that makes him actually legitimate. Um, but. but but the reason I ask is because it makes it that makes it less that heaven has chosen him and more that he's you know this is just his by legal right. He's he's the lawful heir. Right. The legend is really weird on that point, I feel like. I mean, I haven't read a ton of it. Coyle, maybe you have more to say on this than I do. Um, uh, but, yeah, in, in Mallory's... Uh, um, what, I, don't even, I don't know how to pronounce it. You have to pronounce it for me, Michael. Um, I, I think it's Mordartour. Yeah, that one. Um, it's... Uh, well, there's 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 several different legends that are mixed even in that story. It's not exactly coherent, um, but it's kind of unclear about why exactly Merlin has you know has gone through these lengths to hide him and stuff like that. I mean, it seems like nobody wants a boy king, so that's part of it. Like he would be in danger, um, but he is the legitimate king, and so it just it takes the it takes the miracle to prove to everyone that he's the legitimate king, because otherwise they they maybe would have. Um, killed him rather than allowing him to, to come to the throne. But it's definitely more of an, uh, a miracle in that in that book as well because it's you know it is um, you know it's it's at the church it happens on Christmas and then they put it off and, and he does it again on uh, you know he pulls the stone the sword from the stone again on um, uh, Easter and then again on Pentecost oh, and then I think that's when I think that's when they finally accept him. Like the miracle has to be done several times before they they finally accept him. If I if I'm right, and, right. and no one else can do it, even though it's been pulled several times, it's still only Arthur. Yeah, but it's always definitely tied to these religious these religious holidays. So yeah, there's definitely more of a a Christian element and a and a divine um, intervention element. The closest, I guess it, it does say that heaven has chosen him, but I was going to say the closest we get to that is uh, Merlin complaining this is the worst castle at all of Christendom. Well, I feel like I've guided most of this. Do you guys have other other things in your in your notes that you wanted to mention? The animation with the wolf at the beginning when the wolf is stalking Arthur is probably the most cartoonish thing we've seen. In a in a Disney feature, at least since the package films, and it does not work for me. I think it looks really really crappy. Yeah, I was thinking that too. That that a lot of the wolf 
stuff. Not only that one, but then later with the squirrel, the, there's the there's the very cartoony physics um, that's that's more characteristic of of Looney Tunes. We, I mean, you do see it in the Disney shorts as well, you know. But like they jump off the cliff together, but then the squirrel is somehow able to like turn in in midair and then jump off of the wolf and back on into safety. Um, yeah, the it was a it was a weird. It, it's not. Yeah, I. You just said it. Like it's not something that we've seen a lot of thus far, um, in the in the more the canon films. Again, though, my kids love those scenes. Like, I, I was gonna say, I bet they, your kids liked it. Yeah, they found them hilarious. So, um, yeah, on the one hand, uh, they they are different than what we've seen, and and I do agree that I, it's this is just a weird movie. Like it's it's not fully cohesive. I feel like um, <laughs> what what was it? Broad and um yeah uh the, you see that again you know uh here with some of that stuff broad and careless <laughs> yeah um, you see a little bit like like a small child's world right i mean it's it, it's it's the sort of perspective we would expect to have if we were you know 10 year old boys mm. um i i the only way i think you're going to make me like this is if you say well it fits the it fits the time period or the the imaginative time period, because I mean we've seen we've seen a lot of other movies from the perspective of of children and they they hold together better than this one does. Yeah, that's fair. But I um I was surprised how much I disliked this because I had I, I've seen it before obviously but uh, I uh, I was grumpy about it almost from the moment it started. I don't, I don't know maybe maybe I was just in a bad mood when I watched it. But I, I would definitely put this below anything other than the package films. And even then, I probably like uh, Ichabod and Mr. Toad better than this. In fact, I know I do. So. Yeah, that's that's another one you could probably sell me on. I, I really enjoy Ichabod and Mr. Yeah. Toad. Or uh, Ichabod, Mr. Toad. Yeah, it's it's fine. Uh, but the uh, the uh, Ichabod Crane short uh, short is excellent. Yeah, I would. I, I think we both agreed that was the best of the package movies, didn't we, Josh? Yes, definitely. Yeah, it's a, it's a good one. Um, I don't know where I would rate this one. I like I said, I, I do have a I do have a fair bit of nostalgia for it, um, and my kids really like it, so we watch it, um, you know, with some some frequency and regularity in my house right now. So. Um, and as as childish as the songs are, I do get you know higgity piggity in my head a lot, and I get you know stop and go in my head a lot. So, um, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure where I'd put it on the grand rating. Definitely not in the in the top top tier like you, Coil, but um, also not in the bottom like you, Michael. So I guess I'm kind of just just in the middle somewhere. You're the the golden mean yes. between our two extremes. <laughs> there you go. That's that's a nice way of you to put it. Did you want to say anything else about the uh, the politics of the movie, um, Coyle? Since you are the political guy on the show. Uh. Oh, uh, I, I mean, it's it's uh, it's obviously not openly political, other than they're 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 missing a king. Uh, so I, I I think we've we've kind of hit a lot of the uh, a lot of the more subtexty political stuff. I, uh, I'm I'm not a defender of monarchy, so I I, I don't have anything specific to say about that. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. All right. Well, should I wrap it up then, or, or is there something else? I, I don't want to leave anything off the table if you guys have it. I think I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. All right. 
Michael and I know there are a great number of podcasts out there you could be spending your time on, so thank you for choosing us. We want to encourage you to set your podcast player dials to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, where you'll find an abundance of both new and old shows, um, including a slew of City of Man episodes if you want to hear more from Coil. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Uh, we're on the old interwebs at beforetheywere.live. Uh, please help us continue this conversation by finding us on Twitter. I'm at the underscore alt, and Michael is at Michael Farmer. So for Michael Farmer and special guest Coyle Neal, I'm Josh altman Chauffeur, reminding you that the books are always first, you know, and knowledge and wisdom is the real power, so stick to your schooling, boy. <laughs>